Well, look what the Spirit dragged in today. It is good to see that you are still willing to congregate together at this stage in the apocalypse. I was beginning to wonder if I might be preaching to an empty room for the rest of my career. Psychologists say that talking to yourself is completely normal. It's good news to me, since that's what it feels like I've been doing for the last 14 months. But alas, you exist. You're here. There is still a remnant, a congregation, a church that desires to be in person. And here you are, in the flesh today, in all your glory, just the way I like to see you, with masks on your faces. So I can't hear your muffled cries in worship or what you're saying about me. Or if you're frowning during my sermon, I think this could be a helpful game for us to play together. Today, you keep your feelings a mystery, or you can try to communicate to me with your eyes. In all seriousness, it is a true joy to be with you here in our sanctuary today. Welcome home. And for those online, we wish that you were here with us. As the poet W.H. Auden reminds us with his famous words about Pentecost, today is a day for rejoicing. He wrote, bells clash at the elevation, calling on us to change. Whether the world has improved or not is doubtful, but we believe it could. Rejoice, the bells cry today. Rejoice, we who were born congenitally deaf are able to listen now to rank outsiders. The Holy Ghost does not abhor a golfer's jargon a southern accent, or even the cadences of my own little Anglo-American set, but no sacred nonsense can stand God's fire. Our magic syllables melt away today, our tribal formulas laid bare, since this morning it is with a vocabulary made wholesomely profane, open in lexicons to our foes to translate that we endeavor each in our own idiom to express the true wonder which needs no hollowing from us. Today would be a day for jubilee, even if it was only Pentecost, but there is so much more for us to celebrate today. We made it to this moment. The pandemic isn't over yet, but we can celebrate that we've made it this far. Yes, you can clap for that. You made it this far. We can rejoice this morning because we are here together in this sanctuary and online, in person and virtual again as we once were for the first time in over 400 days. 432 days to be exact, but who's counting? It's actually been 626,100 minutes. Now, I'm not going to break out in singing 525,600 minutes from Wren, but I am, I am wondering this morning, how do you measure a year? How do you measure a pandemic? Do you measure it in minutes, hours, days, months, years? 
You measured in toilet paper, hand sanitizer, Zoom meetings, phone calls, mask mandates, relief bills, Peloton bikes, or virtual services. Do we measure it in losses or lessons, fears or hopes? Do we measure it in what we missed out on or what we made, our memories of the past or our dreams for the future? Do we measure it by all it has cost us or the newness it created? Is it not both and, yes, and all the above? When it comes to us, I will measure the last 432 days by your grace and your patience and your perseverance and your dedication to each other and to this church. I will measure it by how little pressure I felt to open early, to put people's lives at risk. I will measure it by your love for our vulnerable neighbors impacted by hunger, economic injustice, and housing insecurity. I will measure it by your incredible generosity, which empowered us to be and remain financially strong through a difficult recession. I will measure it by the countless hours your deacons, lay leaders, and staff spent preparing pandemic response plans and safety protocols and regathering procedures. I will measure it by all the many phone calls you made over and over again to ensure that people remain connected and cared for so that no one was forgotten. I will measure it by the sacrifices we made to help each other get through a crisis. I will also measure it by the selfless gifts many offer to dramatically improve the quality of our audiovisual production. For those who can't be with us in person today, like our friends at Southminster and so many others. I will measure it by the wisdom and guidance provided by our health and wellness team. I will measure it also by the way we responded to the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery by unabashedly proclaiming that Black Lives Matter and giving a founding gift to a movement for restorative justice in our city. This weekend is the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. May he rest in power. And I'm measuring the pandemic today by the more than 300 people who have now taken a spiritual journey since George Floyd's murder toward becoming anti-racist by engaging in the deep soul work of confronting their whiteness. I will measure it by the extraordinary music and art we experience from our theologians and artists in residence. And I will measure it by all the guests who visit us online and all the new members who joined our church without ever having stepped foot in this building. I see many of you are here today, and we are thrilled to welcome you to your home. We don't measure a pandemic in days or months or years. We measure it in people, in relationships. We measure it in people lost and found, changed and transformed, remade and reborn. We measure it the way that God measures the world, not by might or by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. 
We may not have been together in person, but we were with you in spirit. And the spirit has been busy working in us, among us, and through us for the last 432 days. Today, it is fitting for us to take a moment to consider all that the spirit has done in these last 14 months to offer our deep gratitude and give glory to God. It's no surprise to me that a global crisis brought out the best in who we are as a church. We were born in a crisis, in a global crisis. Our church was founded in the middle of World War II by people possessed by a dream for a different kind of church, a new form of faith free from the theocratic barbarism that characterized so much of Christianity in the South. Our founders had a deep awareness of the time in which they lived, and they took responsibility for that moment by creating and cultivating something new, a new creation. One of our founders, Fred Helms, explained, World War II was upsetting all of us. Things were downright serious, and so we concluded that religion ought to be downright serious too, and that it was time for us, he said, to wake up and get going. For over 78 years now, that is how the Spirit has moved among us. In times of war and peace and calm and crisis, tribulation and tranquility, the Spirit of God has not only been with us always, it has been constantly pushing us, pulling us, prodding us, provoking us as a people to wake up and get going forever forward. Fifty years ago, our third senior minister, Gene Owens, arrived in Charlotte during another global crisis at the height of a different war, this time in Vietnam. Gene and his family were called at a moment when there were the largest protests in American history that was before last summer, and a fight on the streets for black freedom being waged with protests in over a hundred cities after the assassination of Martin Luther King, Jr. Sometimes we remember the past with rose-colored glasses, as if there was a time when there was no tension or political controversy because the emotions of the past are hard for us to feel in the present. But early on in his tenure, Gene arrived in the middle of the most unpopular war in American history in a country politically divided and protests in the streets of almost every major American city. And yet, like the global crisis our founders faced, we did not shrink from the weight of history or the enormity of that moment. We rose, as we always do, to meet the occasion. In a sermon entitled Mandate for Change in 1971, Gene reminded this congregation that the Spirit of God does not depend upon us to do its work in the world, nor will it wait for us to wake up and get going. Gene asked, does the Spirit depend upon this institution and its success? He explained what he meant. He said, what I mean is, it's summed up in this adage, don't rock the boat or the budget will suffer. Or he said, as one person informed me, your participation in that peace demonstration cost us 20 grand. Gene confessed it was a high price if one believes this charge. And the price is not only financial, 
for if the charge is valid, there is little freedom of either pulpit or pew. He went on to say, also remember the sadness our leaders felt the day a neighboring pastor rationalized the silence of their church on some important community issue by pointing out that any statement from him or his members would damage their drive for the building fund. Gene then proclaimed, what I am saying is this, that attitude of hesitancy, fear, and silence must change or the church is dead. Don't rock the boat, Gene asked rhetorically. The storm outside the church is rocking the boat. And the only way we can stand the stench inside the ark, he said, is because of the storm outside. If you're wondering what he meant by the stench, come talk to me later. Gene concluded, there's a high price to pay for institutional expressions of faith. Storms are raging that we can't ignore, and change is in the air that will affect us as an institution, whether we like it or not. And we will have to surrender certain notions of grandeur, demythologize ourselves again and again, and demask the myth of this church in order to see if the glory and the spirit of God is still here among us. As we gather in person today to try to wake up and get going, it is comforting to me to know that we've been quarantined in our homes far longer than the disciples were shut up indoors after the resurrection. According to Luke, the disciples had been holed up and hiding underground, waiting patiently in Jerusalem for 50 days when the violent wind rushed in and tongues of fire descended upon them at the Jewish feast called Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Pentecost literally means 50. Everyone knows that seven is a holy number or the Feast of Weeks is celebrated seven weeks and seven days after Passover or the length of 49, which is the number that precedes 50, or what the Jewish people called the Jubilee. 50 was not a rule of measurement for Israel. It was a rule of life, a way of being, a social ethic, a form of existence, a blueprint for an alternative community, a roadmap for calling out authentic and holy space for us to live true love and liberty in the midst of an oppressive empire, a set of architectural drawings for the building of the beloved community. The 50th year, otherwise known as the Sabbath year, the Jubilee, or the Day of the Lord, is an economic vision laid out in Leviticus 25, picked up by the prophets Isaiah, Amos, and Joel, in which God commanded, leaving the land fallow, forgiving sins, and forgiving debts, redistributing wealth, returning land to its original owners, releasing prisoners, and liberating the oppressed. The Jubilee was synonymous with what later became known as the Kingdom of God, and Jesus made the Jubilee his personal mission statement. In Luke 4, when he quoted from Isaiah 61 and proclaimed, The Spirit of God is upon me and anointed me to bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the day of the Lord. And then, as you know, he rolled up the scroll, dropped the mic, and said, Now that you've heard it, this scripture has been fulfilled. After experiencing the execution and resurrection of Jesus, the disciples were huddled together, waiting, hoping, praying for 50 days. Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem and promised that they would be baptized by the Holy Spirit, clothed with power on high. But they did not expect that it would come on Pentecost, which was a festival 
where the people of Israel remembered the giving of the Torah and their entry into covenant with God. King David is said to have been born and died on Pentecost. And so on this holiday every year, the Jewish people would read the book of Ruth about David's great-grandmother and remember all the covenants and promises God made with people throughout history. They especially remembered one covenant in particular, one that we almost never talk about, the covenant God made with Noah after the flood, a rainbow covenant where God commanded to Noah and his descendants to be fruitful and multiply, to become good stewards of the earth and never shed human blood and join with God in the work of protecting and caring for all flesh. Yes, all flesh. The same language we hear from Joel and Peter. Few of us know that the covenant God made with Noah is the only covenant in the Hebrew Bible that includes the Gentiles. So when the wind blew in, and the tongues of fire descended, and the Gentiles gathered in Jerusalem heard the disciples speaking about God's deeds of power in their own languages. Peter knew that the gift of the Spirit Jesus promised had arrived. However, the reason Peter quoted from the prophet Joel to interpret this extraordinary event is that he also knew another thing, that Joel is the only prophet who spoke about the day of Jubilee and the covenant of Noah at the same time. Peter recited Joel because he knew that the gift of the Spirit was not just the fulfillment of Jesus' promise, but also the fulfillment of the promise God had made to Noah and the fulfillment of the promise of the Jubilee. This means that the church, which came into existence when the wind blew in that day, was born from the fulfillment of three different promises. The promise of the Gentiles, the promise of Jubilee, and the promise of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Gentiles was a mandate for inclusion. The promise of the Jubilee was a mandate for political liberation and economic justice. And the Spirit was the glue that united these promises together. Because the Spirit is that force that is always expanding beyond the boundaries of the church, including more people and empowering the church in the pursuit of justice in the world. The capital C Church and the lowercase c church, that is Myers Park Baptist, born of the spirit with a mandate and a mission for gathering people into an inclusive community and empowering them to join together with God in the pursuit of Jubilee. The church and its mission of inclusivity and justice were born at Pentecost, and yet it must be born again at Pentecost every year. Pentecost is not a one-time thing. Pentecost is the fulfillment of an ancient promise and the hope of a new creation. The covenant of Noah is the fulfillment of an ancient vision and the hope for a new creation. Jubilee is the promise of an ancient vision and the hope for a new creation. Pentecost is the promise of an ancient vision and the hope of a new creation. And the church today, here we are as the promise of an ancient vision and the hope of a new creation. This morning, we are here in this place as both the fulfillment of the dream our founders possessed and the hope of a new creation. In our church covenant, we committed, and we do so again and again, to become new creations, to become a community of God's new creation. So the question we have to ask ourselves every year on Pentecost is, are we willing to be born again? Are we willing to be made new? Are we willing to take responsibility for the newness in our lives, in our church, and the new creation that the Spirit is bringing into the world?
In the epilogue to his book, No Name in the Street, James Baldwin wrote, An old world is dying, and a new one, kicking in the belly of its mother, announced that it is ready to be born. The birth will not be easy, and many of us are doomed to discover that we are exceedingly clumsy midwives. No matter. So long as we accept our responsibility is to the newborn. The acceptance of that responsibility contains the key. We are in the midst of a global crisis, no different from the crisis we faced as a church in 1943, in 1973, and in 1993. And this pandemic is only one of many crises we face today, racially, politically, economically, environmentally, and existentially. The storm outside the ark is strong as ever, and it may not seem much worse than the stench inside. It may seem overwhelming and terrifying for us, but we've walked through storms and crisis before, have we not? And we will do it again, together, because that is what we were born to do, and it's who we were born to be. No matter what the storm is outside or What's going on in the world, our responsibility is always, always, always to the new creation. And so we can continue this journey of faith together by holding on to the powerful words from the Talmud which says, Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justice now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to finish the task, but neither are you free to abandon it. So let us rejoice this Pentecost at what the Spirit has done among us over the last 432 days. Let us celebrate this Pentecost, what the Spirit is still doing in us and through us and among us as a community of faith. Let our hearts soar with jubilee as we take responsibility today for God's new creation and then as always, let us wake up and get going. Amen. Amen.